This is the last week, um, seven weeks through Revelation, sort of like drinking out of a fire hose. I get it. Today's not going to be any better. So find your Bible, find your swipey thing, and uh, get uh, to Revelation. We're going to be in the last 19, 20, 21, 22, just four chapters today, and uh, we're kind of going to finish it up. Uh, It has been a delight to travel through Revelation, both on Wednesday nights with our Bible study group and then in here on Sunday mornings, and I appreciate the, the positive comments. Next week, we start our series on forgiveness, and that'll run us uh, through Thanksgiving. So, so glad that uh, we can study the Word together. Good to have all of you if you're online watching us. Uh, glad to have you. And, and I want to take a, th- a minute just to thank you for your generosity. The offering boxes that are set up outside, the giving online, you guys have been so faithful, and we so appreciate that. We are in a a brand new giving year, so thank you. Keep it up. Uh, We appreciate you supporting all the ministries that we uh, do around here. So we're finishing up Revelation, and uh, uh, I'm going to call this one Eternal Endings because it is the future. It is the end of all things, as it says in Lord of the Rings. It is, it is the way that God is going to pull His curtain down on this world someday and somehow. And, and the Scripture gives us some clues as to how that might happen. But let me remind you and me that the purpose of Revelation is to give hope. Uh, the purpose of Revelation is not to be scary and cryptic and dragons and beasts and all of that stuff. The, the purpose of Revelation is to give hope. There were a group of churches in Asia Minor, Western Turkey, we would call it today, and they were discouraged. They were enduring persecution from the Roman government. The uh, system of Greek and Roman gods had begun to fade, and and now it was being replaced by an insistence that they worship the emperor of Rome. Matter of fact, some of the later emperors of Rome insisted on being called my Lord and my God. And so this this persecution, this this pressing down was kind of getting to some of them, and they were a little discouraged because Jesus had said six decades before, I'm coming back, and they were wondering why He hadn't. That's not unfair. He said, I'm coming back. He said, lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. He he ascended to heaven, and and He said, I will return. And they were wondering why He had not. And so Jesus, through uh, angels and whatever, gave John this series of visions in Revelation that we started way back in chapter 1, and we've worked our way through all the visions where he, he told churches the way we ought to act and, and the way we ought not to act and, and the way we ought to treat each other and the promises of God that are secure. And he did that in a way that's sort of cryptic and kind of a, a visions and fantastic kind of sci-fi stuff. And now we get down to the very last chapter And I'm going to surprise you with an old hymn. We've always heard about people who had dramatic conversations, conversions to Christ, right? We've heard about the Apostle Paul, and uh, we've heard about uh, maybe some contemporary people, Anne Rice, Mark Wahlberg, C.S. Lewis. Uh, actors, Chuck Norris, who, who, who had some kind of experience, 
And that experience caused them to evaluate the way they had been living and sort of change courses. And in a way, that's what Revelation is about. Well, there's a guy named John Newton, and his family was involved in the slave trading business in England back in the 1770s. Somewhere in that time, he was on his way back from Africa to the European continent with a shipload of slaves. Tremendous storm came up and caused some of his crew to be washed overboard and lost. He got safely back to land with his cargo, and, and it caused him to really think about his life and whether that was a place that he needed to be, whether that was a place that honored God. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. And so he began to think about that. He got out of the family business. He repented from that whole industry. And as he reflected back on that experience and how it drove him to come to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he wrote these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I'm going to have a, a stanza from the hymn with each of the, the ideas that I'm going to talk about this morning, and that, that idea kind of goes along with it because the book of Revelation is just that. It wants to take us from the, the place where we are through all the storms of life, and lead us to a place where we get to the very end and we know that we know that we know that we know that we have a place with God forever in heaven. That's, that's what Revelation is all about. And so as we've traveled through it, we now get to the place where that becomes very real. That, that realization of heaven uh, becomes a thing. And I wrote in my Bible, this is where the the mourning and lament of the previous chapters, where we read that the great Babylon, which represented Rome and any other kingdom that, that seeks to have a leader that says, you call me God, you put me in the place of God. Any, any empire, any government, any province, any country, state, municipality, any, any where the leaders begin to say, our way is more important than a way of faith, Here's what you need to do, even though it contradicts your faith. And in the first century, these brave Christians stood up to Rome. Many lost their lives, and they said, God's way is more important than your way. And so that's the, the story for us in Revelation. And here we have a, a future look. The scene is moving from earth to heaven. Now the, 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 the evil and the, the empire has been uh, vanquished. The, the, the Scripture says Babylon has fallen. The great Babylon has fallen. Rome was, was not a thing anymore. And, and that was, of course, a future cast because it wasn't until uh, the, the later part of that century or the mid part of that century that Rome actually fell. And so we get the place where the scene shifts from mourning to the hallelujah chorus, from lament to rejoicing, and we pick up in chapter 19, verse 1, after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah. 
Now, if you haven't been here, uh, we've talked about that, that John is receiving this whole thing from Jesus. Chapter 1, it talks about that, that, that he's getting these ideas, write this down, write this down, write this down. And so he's writing all this stuff down, and, and, and God is giving it to John to give to us, hopefully in language that we can understand. And so he says, now it's about hallelujah. Now it's about God is on the move. There's a, there's a, a vindication coming. All of those who have been persecuted, it's, the, 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 the evil people are going to get theirs in the end. Judgment is coming. It's uh, the end of all things is approaching, and, and your perseverance and your courage and your bravery, it's, it's going to pay off. God sees it. And so he says, hallelujah. Now, a quick show of hands, audience participation part of the show. How many of you passed English at one time or other in your lifetime? Anybody? Okay, so the word hallelujah, we sang it in the song uh, a minute ago. We sang it a lot. First of all, there's a, a trick question. Anybody have any idea what books that appears in in the New Testament? Only here. Hallelujah, is, it's in the Psalms, not mentioned anywhere else in the, in the New Testament, but here. Okay, now here's the English part. What part of speech is hallelujah? Noun, verb, is it an interrogative? Is it an imperative? Is it a declarative? You didn't have any idea I knew all those words, did you? What is it? It's a command. It's an imperative. It's an implied subject. You praise God. That, that would be the, the sentence formed with the word hallelujah. Hallel is the praise of Yah represented God. Hallelujah. Praise God. You praise God. It's a command. And, and basically, it's an unnecessary command because when we get to heaven and we realize uh, verse uh, 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute, Rome, He's cor who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on the, her the blood of the servants. This, this could apply to Rome, it could apply to uh, Great Britain, it could apply to America, it could apply to all the great empires who eventually decide that a way of government is better than a way of God. And so we don't, we don't limit this to Rome, but, but certainly he's talking about that. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And then the elders and the creatures, they all worshiped God. Praise you, our God, verse 5. The angels are singing. All his servants, you who fear him, small and great, all believers, all classes, all social groups. Get ready for this one. All stages of development in our Christian life. For those of you who are brand new Christians, it says you come for the hallelujah. It doesn't matter what you know or what you don't know. You come for the hallelujah. You have been a little longer in the tooth and you've been doing this for a while. Be remembered that the purpose of this whole relationship is that you get to come for the hallelujah. A realization that amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. Well, the realization gives way to anticipation. 
Now, what do you anticipate more than a wedding? I don't know. I know that you think about it forever, that you uh, sign up for endless websites. My daughter just celebrated her first year of marriage, and I have lots of memories about all of the stuff that we gathered storing at our house to make sure that it was a wonderful event. I can't think of anything that's more anticipated than a wedding. But in our modern culture, we send out a wedding invitation for the people we really want to come. But way before that, we send something else out. Save the date. That's what this is. It's not really the invitation, not really the wedding itself. It's a save the date. Think about this. The verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, and they were all crying out, Rejoice. Here we go with hallelujah again. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let me throw a wrench in it. A wedding is a great diversion, right? Whatever else is going on in your life, If you're planning a wedding, that is all you think about. We got no money, but we're planning a wedding. We got no time, but we're planning a wedding. Hadn't had a vacation in years, but we're planning a wedding. And the people in the first century in Asia Minor, these churches, they were anxious. They were fearful. They were uptight about what Rome was going to do and what they were going to do about it. And It's kind of cool that a wedding takes all your mind off of those issues. The Scripture says, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. It's the grace that put that reverence of God that replaced the anxiety with the certainty. It is grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace will lead me home, says in a later statement. It's that that transaction that takes place. And so that's happening here. But there's a a statement at the very end of this save the date section that makes me really pause. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I probably don't have to tell any of you that throughout Scripture, The bride of Christ is the church. And collectively, it's all of us who have have claimed the name of Christ as our Savior. It's we are collectively the bride of Christ, the church. And this concept was really important to Jesus. He told two parables about weddings. And he performed his first miracle at a wedding. He he liked these things. And one of the parables he told was about a a great wedding feast and invitations were sent out to everybody, but several people just decided they didn't want to be a part of that. You know, you, you oh, another wedding. And so they, they didn't come. And he said, we send invitations out to anybody, everybody, compel them all to come. But then he told a story in Matthew 25 about a wedding that was going to take place And there were 10 bridesmaids, 10 attendants. He called them virgins. And they were supposed to help the bride be ready for the surprise time when the groom would come get her. And that's the way Jewish weddings were in the first century. They they didn't really save the date. They said save the month. 
because it was a little indefinite. And so he would come to get her, and these bridesmaids would light their lamps and light the way as they went to wherever they were going. And the parable was about some of them not being ready. And so when we get to this verse, the bride has made herself ready. I can't even imagine a bride not being ready for her wedding day. I can't even imagine. It's an hour before the wedding. She's not dressed. The hair's not done. Still needs a bath. Unimaginable. And yet in my Bible, with a clear understanding that the bride of Christ is the church, and the Scripture says the bride has made herself ready, I wrote two words and a question mark in my Bible. Have we? Have we made ourselves ready in our prayer, in our devotion, in the way we treat each other, in the way we regard worship? Have we made ourselves ready for the groom, Christ himself, to come get us? Anticipation. Well, anticipation is sort of backstopped with separation. And all of a sudden, after this passage where we hear in verse 9, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we get down to a part of Revelation that almost all of you have heard about. The rider on the white horse, oh, I know this one. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Well, let me geek out a little bit. The writer of Revelation loved numbers. John, through the Spirit of Christ, he loved numbers. He loved the number seven. And we're going to find out today he loved the number 12. Both of those represented completeness for him. Seven was sort of a, an accepted number of completeness. Six was less than complete. Six, 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 the number of the Antichrist, way less than complete. And so seven was a good number. Twelve was a good number. So it shouldn't surprise you that within the vision, as we sort of close down the, the back stretch here, there are seven I saw, I saw statements, seven visions within the vision that introduce how the Lord is going to bring all this thing to a close. And the first one is in chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. Now, he gives us the name of that rider four times. First, he says his, in righteousness he judges and makes war. So now we are at the end of Revelation, and we finally understand that judgment is here. That there is now an accounting for right, for wrong, for good, for evil, for those who follow God and those who do not. There, there, there is an ending. There is a separation. For those first century Christians who heard this, there was vindication. He, he's finally going to judge the evil people. He's finally going to judge Rome. The emperor is finally going to get what's coming to him. So, and you're right. He has come to judge. He makes war. His eyes are like fire. Discernment on his head are many crowns, royal crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's the second one. That's probably a reference to the Hebrew practice of never mentioning the name of God, only referring to him by the four consonants that, that we make the, the, the word Yahweh out of. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Maybe his blood, maybe the blood of enemies. Maybe it represents the cross. Maybe it represents conquest. We don't know. By the name which he is called is the word of God. There's the third time that his name is mentioned. And the armies of heaven arrayed in linen, white and pure, like the bride mentioned earlier. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and he's going to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress. We talked about that last week, that the wrath of God was represented by a winepress. On his robe, chapter 19, verse 16, and on his thigh he has name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's the PG-13 part. The second I saw statements in chapter, uh, in verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he commands all the birds. Cover your child's ears. To eat the flesh of the evil ones. Now that's a gross image. The voice commands, the angel commands. Now there is judgment going on. He has come to make war, the rider on the white horse, and he's commanded the birds to eat the flesh of kings, of captains, verse 18, mighty men, horses, riders, all men, free and slaves, small and great. Third, I saw statement. So I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, their armies are gathered to make war. A lot of people think this is Armageddon. This is that, that last battle. And so the armies of the king are aligned. The armies of the evil ones are aligned. And verse 20, the beast was captured, the Antichrist, with it the false prophet, who with his presence had done the signs. He deceived those who received that mark. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's gross, but true. And the rest were slain by the sword so, so we, we get this battle going on, and now the, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, we talked about them back in chapter 13, they are, are vanquished. So the Antichrist is no more. The beast or the false prophet, the beast out of the sea who, 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 who was sort of his hype man, he's gone too. And there is victory. Then chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw, another I saw statement, an angel coming down from heaven, and in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. Okay, so we've got the beast and the false prophet, and now the dragon, the red dragon that represented Satan himself, and all three have been conquered by the king. Now, pause, time out. When you get to chapter 20 and you read thousand years, you go, there it is. That's the millennium. And you are right. And I'm about to reveal to you what the millennium means. I don't know. And you don't either. There are some that say that the millennium reign of Christ, which is clear here, there is a millennium reign of Christ. He will cast Satan into the pit. He'll cast the beast, the false prophet. All are vanquished. So there is a, there is a time for a thousand years or symbolically a thousand years, depending on how you look at it, where evil is not on earth where Jesus and his, his peace are reigning on earth and that alone. 
So we get to this place. Some people say that the church and the followers of Christ are taken away before that. They don't experience any of this. Some of it say that the millennium is what we're experiencing right now. The church age is the millennium. We don't know. What we know is that there is a battle between good and evil, between the angels and the demons, between God and Satan, and that Satan and the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet, they are all locked away somewhere. Hell, maybe, lake of fire, okay. But they're not here. And for a thousand years, whenever that is and whatever that is, there is nothing but peace on earth. People marry, people have babies, people get jobs. A lot of the indications in Scripture say that, that this is largely non-believers who, who did not receive Christ during uh, their time on earth. And so for a thousand years, basically non-believers have a chance to see what it's like when Satan is not influencing them in any way. Still with me? Elbow your neighbor, say wake up. Here's my takeaway with all this, and this this goes on for a while. Uh, Chapter 20, uh, threw him into the pit, thousand years, then another verse 4, another I saw statement, there's judgment, Uh, there are people who had been martyred, they are reigning with Christ for the thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Verse 6, another of the Beatitudes in Revelation, blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. The first death, our physical death. The second death, our spiritual death. The second death, the spiritual death is not to be feared because Jesus has saved them. But then a really interesting one in verse 7, chapter 20 When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And I'm going, why? You got him right where you want him. Correct that. You got him where I want him. Satan is not pestering anybody. He's not influencing anybody. He's not uh, possessing anybody. he He is locked away somewhere, and yet you let him loose. I think the reason for that is to hold up a mirror to our faces. We are fallen people in a fallen world. And here he says he turns Satan loose after a thousand years, and the first thing that happens is that he raises up a band of followers. That's, that's what it says. Satan will be released. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog, Magog, they are representative of all humanity. And he raised up this army. They marched over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, it's really anticlimactic. Turn him loose out of, hell, out of hell or wherever he is. He influences some people. He continues to deceive the earth. He raises up an army. And just a few verses, the army is dispatched and we're done with it. We are fallen people in a fallen world. And if a thousand years of generation after generation after generation, never knowing anything except the presence of Jesus, that the minute evil is released into the world, people are drawn to it. 
Paul said it a different way. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is that in all of us. There is this, this evil, this, this inclination to sin. We saw it in the Garden of Eden. As soon as the snake showed up in, an, in a, a, an idyllic paradise, Adam and Eve chose to chase after evil. And where the writer of Revelation, he's making sure we understand that that is potential in all of us. And so he turns him loose. Why? Why? Well, beyond that, we have finally another symbol that you'll recognize. Chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Jesus, obviously, God. These are the last two I saw statements, 11 and 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, verse 12, chapter 20, and books, plural, were opened. Books, plural. Then another book was opened. So there's at least three. There's books, there's another book. It looks as you read this, like one of the, the, the set of books, the first set of books is uh, books of merit or books of deeds, says the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades, and everyone was judged according to what they were, had done. And verse 15 references the other book, and if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do you do with this? Well, that that terrible image that you have in your head of you sitting at the pearly gates, your eyes on a movie screen that tells everything you've ever thought or done, and your grandmother, of course, is sitting right beside you. And you've got this horrible thought that all that you've ever done will be revealed. And that's absolutely true. Don't know about grandma. But you're going, well, I'm a Christian. Certainly, I don't have to be there, and there are a whole lot of people, particularly those who believe that, that, that the church is, is raptured prior to the millennial reign. They don't believe that, that anybody goes through this great white throne judgment if you are a Christian, but this is everybody. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says there's a, a judgment seat of Christ, and, and all, will, uh, all believers will be before the judgment seat of Christ, and, and, and the works that you have will be presented. So my takeaway here is pretty simple. What we do here on earth matters. Don't know exactly how it matters, but it, it matters. What we do here matters. It, uh, our kindness matters. Our, our benevolence matters. Our devotion to God matters. Our attention to His Word matters. Our worship matters. We just know that at the end of things, whether it's the judgment seat of Christ or here at the great white throne, there will be a request that we account for the things that we've done. And that non-believers, people who don't follow Christ, they will account for the things they've done. And I picture two very different conversations. One of them goes something like this. But I was nice to people. I gave money to the guy at the end of the interstate ramp. I, I helped feed people. I, I was nice to people. I, I participated in charities and serve day, and I, I didn't cuss all that much, and I really didn't cheat all that many people, and I, I was mostly faithful to my marriage vows. 
Can't you say that the good things that I've done outweigh the bad things that I've done? The other conversation goes something like this. You're right. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I've done everything you accuse me of and more. I've thought everything you accuse me of and more. I've neglected everything you accuse me of and more. My appeal is not my works, but the cross. That's all I got. If your appeal is the cross, you're you're written in the book of life, that other one. And the scripture says that at whatever judgment that is, whatever that looks like, Yes, your works, are, are they matter. But that is not the basis of your eternity with God. It is not the basis of your admission to heaven. The basis of your admission to heaven is that you stand before God and you say, I got nothing. All I know is that Paul said the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God demonstrated his love for me, for you, in that while I was still a sinner, while I was still wretched, while everything you say is true, Christ died for me. My only appeal is the cross. And based on that appeal, I get to inhabit the holy city. Now, some of your stomachs are growling. You're looking at your watch. You're going, it's 12 o'clock, and he's not even winding this thing down. Well, this part doesn't take long because he spends a whole lot of verses talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And he talks about all of the things that may or may not be literal. He says there's no more tears. That's literal. No more death. That's literal. She is, the holy city is prepared as a bride. He says, the sea is no more. In this day, a sea was separation. You got to the beach and and all you saw was water and it represented separation. The sea is no more. The holy city is prepared as a bride. No tears, no death, no plagues, no evil. Verse 5, I, the one who's sitting on the throne said, I'm making all things new. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, uh, the old has passed away. The new has come. It's done. Verse 6, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. I will be God. He will be my son. Then verse uh, 9 picks up the new Jerusalem and the 12 gates and the 12 angels and the 12 tribes and the 12 foundations and the 12 apostles and the Lamb. And the dimensions of the city are given. But for me, the key to this whole passage is verse 22. He says, I didn't see a temple there. Didn't see a a church there. Didn't see Solomon's temple. Didn't see Herod's temple. Didn't see the third temple in Jerusalem or whatever that's about. He said, I didn't see a temple at all. Why? Why? Because the Lord God Almighty is the temple. The whole point of the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem, two words, God's presence. Whatever it is, He's there. Wherever it is, He's there. However big or little it is, He's there. However shiny the streets are, He's there. 
and shiny streets won't matter. Whatever it means, it means he's there. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross that was beside him, and he said, this day you will be with me in paradise. He could have stopped with with me because that is paradise. And the whole point of the revelation is to say no matter how bad it gets, no matter what junk you go through, at the end of all things, you get to go to a place where God is. And that separation is, is described here. When he, when he describes the city, he said the, 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 the evil folks are going to be outside the gates. And then he closes down the whole thing. And for some reason, John Newton's last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. John ended the revelation with what a lot of people call an epilogue, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 22. The, you have to kind of keep up because the, the, the voice goes back and forth between the Jesus and John and angels, and, and, and it starts off, he said to me, Jesus said to me, John, saying, these words are trustworthy and true, the angel is speaking to him. The Lord God, the Spirit sent his angel, and he said this. Now, verse 7, we have Jesus' voice. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of the book. John regains the mic back in chapter uh, 22, verse 8. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. Verse 12, Jesus' voice again. Behold, I am coming soon. I'm bringing accountability, recompense with me to repay everybody for what they've done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those. And he ends it. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Some of you recognize that as the word Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. All interpretations of Revelation are human interpretations. With me? It it is fascinating and spiritually invigorating to contemplate how God is going to do it, when is He going to do it, where is He going to do it, how is He going to bring everything together. But the message of Revelation is very, very clear. He is coming back. He is going to have an accounting. And he is using this entire book of Revelation as sort of a cryptic roadmap so that we can grab onto the, the, the signs, make the right turns when we recognize that something's going on, but all in all, we keep our mind on our destination, and it is Christ. Judy will tell you, that I am a bit of a GPS skeptic. I know none of you are like this. You get your phone, or if you still have a Garmin, your flip phone doesn't work. But you put your phone up there, and it shows up on Apple Play, and there's a map that's just as big as life telling you exactly where you're supposed to go. And just in case you missed it, the voice is telling you turn by turn how to get where you're going. And too often I'll say to Judy, I don't know about that. I'm not so sure. 
And a hundred times out of a hundred, the voice is right and I'm wrong. We're hopelessly lost and the, VP, the GPS is going, hey, dummy, I told you to turn back there. But here's the deal. You have a choice to obey the voice. And that's what Revelation is about. You have a choice to obey the voice. That all through this, God is saying, here's the signs, here's the turns, here's the thing, here's the danger, here's the warning, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. Uh, There there is a a, a time when all things have come to an end, and I'm giving you turn-by-turn directions all the way through it. But at the end of it, you have a choice to obey the voice. And at the very end of Revelation, he said, all that's said has been said. Come, Lord Jesus. And throughout the book of Revelation, there has been this theme of there is still time. There is still time. There is still time until there's not still time. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't know how he's coming back. I know that there are many, many signs that are pointing to a return soon. But at the end of the day, all of us individually throughout the book of Revelation, those who did not repent, those who did not, those who denied, those who uh, aligned with Satan's armies, you have a choice to obey the voice. And I want to give you that choice today. Would you bow your heads? Just get in your own space and ask yourself, have I made that choice? Revelation points in that direction. Have I obeyed that voice? Have I paid attention to that voice? Have I accepted the invitation to come and be part of that? If you would like to do that today and say a prayer, a very simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I need you. I understand that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and I want to be a follower of yours. And and I I, I confess to you that I've sinned. The books are open, and you're right. Everything I've done, I've done. But I appeal only to the cross. Lord, would you come into my heart? Would you fill me up and teach me how to follow you from now until whatever time you return? If that's a prayer that you said or need to say, Would you come see me after the service? I'll be right on the lobby. We'll find a quiet place. Other pastors will be out there. You can go to the connection corner over in the the corner and say, "I, I need somebody to talk to me about what Alan said today. And we'll make sure that that conversation happens before you leave this property. Or we can schedule a time later on in the week. Father, hear us. Hear the prayers of the saints. Hear our plea for you to come to return, Father. But until that time, that we would live as the bride who's making herself ready day by day. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.